Let me echo that and say thank you. Uh, my wife and I had a wedding yesterday in Greenville, so we weren't able to help unload the truck. Wasn't that convenient? <laughs> so we did pull up and drop off some pizzas and drinks on our way to the wedding. And I pulled up to that house and was overwhelmed by the volume of people that were helping. But when I first pulled up, I didn't realize it was GPC people. I thought it was town folk. And so I pulled up and I was like, hey, I know him and him and her and her. It was a beautiful thing to see the Greenwood Presbyterian Church care about the new RUF campus minister at Erskine College. So that was a warm and sweet moment. And so thank you for those who served. That was truly beautiful. That's the church being the church. And we want to encourage that as much as we can. Speaking of the church being the church, so what is the church? What is the church according to Scripture? Well, that's a good question, and I'm glad you have asked it, because for the last 20-something weeks, uh, it may be more than that, I'm not sure how many it is, but we've been asking that question in our time together in God's Word for the sermons. What is this thing called the church? What is it according to Scripture? Who are we supposed to be? What is our faith? What is our character? What is our likeness in the earth supposed to look like? And we've been in the book of Acts for the last six or seven weeks. This morning we're in Acts chapter 7. And when we began this series, I told you that this was real history about real people who had real faith. These are not myths. These are not legends. These are not mere stories. We are given this as actual history. The question is, do you believe it to be history? And week by week, we're looking at person after person and episode after episode. And I, I want to press upon us all, do you see this as real history? Or have you always heard these stories, especially one that we'll hear this morning, as nice thoughts, legend, myth, storybook story, but not real. I believe this is real history about real people demonstrating real faith. And the beauty of a passage like this morning, from my perspective, is how it prepares us for the reality of hard things and difficult things that happen that happen in this world and that happen to Christians. We live in this tension of seeing beautiful stories and good things happening and yet being in a sinful and fallen world and feeling the hostility of sin against Christ and His church. So let me give you an example of that tension. This weekend was a wedding weekend. I had the privilege of doing a wedding in Greenville, which I just mentioned. And so we were driving to the rehearsal dinner and you're preparing to go to a beautiful moment, right? To participate with a young couple and their families. And I'm, I'm in my mind, I'm working on my sermon. And Maria's next to me, my wife is next to me. And every once in a while, I mouth a sentence about my sermon thoughts. And those tended to be, I'm preaching about death this Sunday. I'm preaching about martyrdom. Dying for Christ this Sunday. Then we go to the rehearsal and we have a wonderful rehearsal dinner. There's speeches given. There are tears of joy given by mothers and fathers and siblings. It was really a beautiful occasion. 
And then we drive home and we're like, wasn't that beautiful to hear the faith of these families? I'm preaching about death on Sunday. I'm preaching about confidence in death. Preaching about martyrdom. And then the same thing yesterday, going and coming from Greenville. So there's this tension about the joy of a wedding and enjoying it and the the reception and the food and the festivity. But I'm talking about death on Sunday. Dying with confidence. Dying in the gospel. And that tension, that back and forth, we feel it in everyday life, right? You're living a normal day and things are going well, things are going right. And then the phone rings. And there's bad news on the other end of the phone. Someone's had an accident. Someone's in the hospital. Someone's received a diagnosis. And we live in that back and forth tension as Christians. But this morning, I want to underscore, in the midst of what is a hard story, there's a confidence and a beauty that is mysterious. And I want you to feel that mystery this morning, even as we read uh, this horrific account. uh, I want you to hear the confidence that Luke, the writer of the story, wants us to know. So give your attention. Acts chapter 7. Verse 51 through chapter 8, verse 1. And let me say this, I'm not reading the entirety of the story because it is a long account. The the context is Stephen has been brought before the Jewish council to answer some questions about his ministry in the name of Jesus. Because that name of Jesus keeps provoking a hostility, not just in the world, but in what we could call the religious folk. Give your attention to God's word. These are, this is Stephen speaking to the religious. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him? You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at Stephen. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. 
And Saul approved of their killing him. A horrific story, a horrific account, and yet somehow strangely beautiful. Let's pray that God would open our eyes and give us confidence. Lord, would you give me the right words and the right thoughts to reveal truth to your people? And Lord, would you instill in our hearts a true confidence, a gospel confidence that would enable us to look death and diagnosis and accident and calamity full in the face with the calmness of the gospel. And we ask this and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a picture, and if, if Randy doesn't mind going back to, the, to the, uh, that picture right there. There's a picture that I found for the talk this morning. That is a part of a picture uh, by Julius Schnorr von Carolsfeld who lived 1794 to 1872. And I picked that picture, if, if you're, I don't know if you're seeing, I guess you're seeing it here every week. Um, but I have different pictures that reveal the context and the content of the story that we cover in Acts. And this was an etching of the stoning of Stephen. But I chose just to use this portion, the fuller picture I decided with the counsel of my own children, perhaps was too graphic to show, maybe some would be uncomfortable with it, thinking of you mothers and fathers of young children. But I'll verbally describe what was there, and that was men of the town holding large stones, praying upon the head of Stephen. Now, true story, when I asked my children, is the, is the full picture too graphic? One of my kids edited the picture, and in place of the stones, he put big red hearts. So it looked like they were showering Stephen with hearts. And I guess that does uh, ease the picture a bit, but I didn't want to use that because, of course, that destroys the reality of the text. It was a horrific event, so much so that I'm not even showing you an etching of it. But verbally, the description of it, you, you understand what's happening. Men are using stones to kill a man. How is that not graphic? And yet it's a story in Scripture of one we would call a dear brother in Christ. So I just want you to feel that, the reality of the horror of this story. But what you do there is you see just Stephen, and you see this beautiful face looking heavenward, even as he is to be pummeled with stones. That is what Acts is telling the early church. It's recording the stories of how the church was welcomed by the world. The name of Jesus produced a hostility that would make the religious, and that's who the story's about, gnash their teeth at Stephen. So I want you to feel that reality, that there is a tension between those God loves and the world, even within the church, the religious. But the Holy Spirit, we're seeing in the book of Acts, He makes Christians bold witnesses. He makes Christians bold witnesses of who God truly is, who the person and work of Christ truly is. And we heard in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, 
that promise from Jesus himself that you disciples, you Christians, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the utter ends of the earth. And what I want to suggest to you is what we see in these accounts of Peter and John and now Stephen, we are seeing how the Holy Spirit enables ordinary men to be profound, bold witnesses of the gospel. But I want you to see how the world responds to that. It gnashes its teeth. It despises. It hates. It stones. There is no tolerance for the name. There's no tolerance for the name of Jesus and the people of Jesus. That's the reality of what Acts tells the church they will experience in the world. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be given power to be my witnesses. We see that same thing happening now in Stephen's life. It's the same thing we read of Peter and John in Acts chapters 3 and 4, where these unschooled and ordinary men suddenly were able to stand and be bold and to preach and to have effect. And everyone's like, these are just ordinary guys. They're not schooled and trained, but we have no answers for what they're saying. And the same thing now happens in the life of Stephen. Stephen in Acts chapter 6 had been set apart as a deacon. You may remember he was one of the seven proto-deacons, the first deacons that we read about and, and heard about from the deacons two weeks ago. And yet he's given the power of speech. He's given the ability to persuade He's given a knowledge, a depth of insight that confounds the religious leaders. These are the things said of Peter, by the way, in chapter 6. It says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. So even Stephen has been given this power to do signs and wonders. Then in verse 10, speaking of the religious... But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave Stephen to speak. And then in verse 15, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, they looked intently at Stephen and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. God had worked upon this man, done something in this man. There was a peace about him, a calm a giftedness that they could not explain. And so Stephen has been empowered by the Holy Spirit in the very way that the Lord Jesus said his disciples would be in Acts 1, verse 8. And this made him bold in speech. And Christians, the Holy Spirit makes Christians in general bold in speech. Even when hated, even when despised, especially when rejected. Now listen, don't forget what Jesus has said in John chapter 15. Jesus pr prepared his disciples for when this time would come and what it would be like. And here's a few excerpts from John chapter 15. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world. 
but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. They will treat you this way because of my name. This is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Do you see all that? That is precisely what's happening here in Acts. And Jesus told his disciples, it's coming. They're going to hate you. They're going to despise you. Associate with my name. And they'll try to shut you down. They'll try to shut you up. They'll even stone you. They'll put you to death. They'll persecute you unto death. Now, Stephen, so much in the account that we read, you, you felt and heard the parallels with Jesus himself. As he's being stoned, he prays for those persecuting him. Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And you see Stephen embodying the likeness of Christ even unto death. And it's, it's visually giving us this picture that as they treated Jesus, so they will treat his followers. Therefore, do not be surprised, do not be surprised when the world does hate you for the name that you wear. Remember, you wear that name if you're a baptized Christian. You've been given the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the name that the world will despise. And so we're not surprised by it. We're honest about it. We prepare for it as a reality that this world is not going to love you because of the name. This world's going to despise you and resist you because of the name. And Jesus told us that it would be that way. So Stephen is addressing these religious leaders and he's doing it boldly. Let me remind you some of the things that Stephen has just said to this Jewish council, to these educated, scholarly, religious leaders. He has said, you stiff-necked people, which is Old Testament language and lingo for saying, you stubborn, hard-hearted people. Now, we don't use the language of stiff-necked so much. Some of us are getting older and we do have stiff necks and we don't turn in the car like we used to. But it's a picture in the Old Testament of stubbornness, that you're determined to do something even though it's not right and not good. Stephen looks these people in the face, these religious men in the face, and says, you stiff-necked people. Then he says, you have uncircumcised hearts and ears, which is to say they're dead, they're lifeless, they don't work as they should, they're spiritually incapable. You haven't gotten a new heart, you haven't gotten new ears, which are necessary to understand. And then he says, you're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And then the cherry on top of his insults, you murderers. You put the Messiah that the scriptures prepared us for, you put him to death. You killed him. Now, these are insult after insult after insult, but we understand, you understand, it's fair, it's true, it's accurate. He's not just insulting, he's telling them the reality of who they are and what they have done. And you know their response to this. They gnash their teeth, 
They cover their ears, they rush him, they take him out of town, and then they begin to stone him. Now I want you to realize this. Stephen is not surprised that that would be these people's response to him. These are the same people that did all of that to Jesus. And now he stands in front of them, he associates with Jesus. He knows this is going to be the outcome, or something like it. He knows that he's provoking, but there's a boldness and a courage in him to say what is true. And so I would say to those of you who have timid spirits, and I'm one of them, we are called and we're given a boldness in our Christian faith, something that empowers us to speak the truth, to say the right thing that needs to be said at, at the moment, when everyone else is just standing there and not saying anything, the Holy Spirit empowers and emboldens Christians to speak boldly, to say true things. And that doesn't mean we feel necessarily courageous when we do it. But Christians will say true and bold things. So don't be defeated by a timid personality type. The Holy Spirit, God himself, can use you to say true things, even in, in threatening and hostile circumstances where you may be afraid of the outcomes. Uh, years ago, I had a seminary professor who told a story that I remembered this week thinking through this. Uh, he had been invited to a prestigious university to speak on a panel uh, of academic scholars, and he was the lone, conservative, Bible-believing scholar. At this prominent university, he was surrounded by what we would call liberal, Bible-disbelieving scholars. And he jokingly but seriously told us the story of the whole room turning to him with a question. And they pressed a question upon him. And he didn't know what to do or what to say at the moment. And he said, men, do you know what I did? He said, there was a jar of pencils sitting in front of me. And I intentionally, but made it look like it was an accident, knocked the pencils over. And the pencils went all over the table and all under the table. And I said, I'm sorry, excuse me. And he then went under the table to retrieve the pencils. But he said, men, I went under that table to pray. And I said, Lord, I don't know what to say. Would you give me the words? Would you speak through me? Would you give me courage? And then he resurfaced out from under the table with a cup of pencils, calm, cool, and collected, and spoke the truth as clearly and faithfully as he could. Sometimes maybe we need to knock the cup of pencils over and gather ourselves and say, Lord, speak through me. Say true things. I don't know what to say, but would you give me courage? Would you spare me from saying wrong things or foolish things? But help me to be faithful in this moment. It might be at work. It might be at home. It might be at the gym, at play. But God is calling us all to be bold and faithful in our speech. And secondly, bold in life. Even at home, even at work, even at play. You and I are called as Christians, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to be bold in life. Not to be timid in life, but to be empowered to be bold parents, bold neighbors, bold employers, 
bold employees, bold workout partners, walking partners, running partners, cycling partners. Everywhere we go, there should be a boldness about our faith. As someone reminded me this week, that's not the same as being brash. You don't have to be obnoxious. You're not called to be difficult. You're called to be a faithful presence wherever you are. So consider if you're being defeated by a timid spirit, forgetting that the Holy Spirit will empower your words, your thoughts, your actions, all of your doings, and make it useful, useful for the kingdom. You're called to be salt and light wherever you are, whatever you do, and we should be more bold in it. So don't just stand there. Say something. And if you don't know what to say, knock the cup of pencils over, gather yourself, pray, and trust that the Lord is at work, even through you. This is us. This is who we're supposed to be, every one of us. It's not just the preachers who do the talking. It's the church. We're the presence of God in the world. So consider your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers. Are you boldly presenting the beauties that you found to be true in Christ? Or are you being defeated by timidity? God's calling us to be bold in speech. He's empowering us to be bold in life. And then lastly, He's even empowering us to be bold in death. To be bold in death even in sickness, even in diagnosis, that Christians are gifted by the Holy Spirit to have a boldness of faith, even in the most difficult circumstances, even in the hardest of times. Romans chapter 14, verse 8 says, If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And there's not a better theme verse to memorize, to have in your heart, than something like that. Whatever the outcome, if we live, if we die, for Christians, the outcome is the same. It's the glory of God, the good of His church, and we are in the safe and sure and confident hands of our Savior, everything is going to be all right. Mysteriously, everything is going to be all right. When Stephen is put to death, you may remember that in verse 56, it says that he saw Jesus. He looked heavenward and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, some of you, maybe it stood out as you heard that twice. It twice says that Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. But when we say things in our creeds, we say that he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And some commentators have wondered, what's the difference here? Why is Jesus standing as Stephen is being stoned? Well, we don't know, but it is interesting to consider what is happening here and why it's said twice by Luke. And some have suggested that as one of the Lord's own is being provoked, it brings Jesus to his feet. And it brings Jesus to his feet 
because he's prepared to receive him into the kingdom as the first martyr who would give his life, give his blood for the name of Jesus. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I think it's beautiful to think about. But Jesus stands at the attention and with concern for Stephen. And, and he does welcome him and receive him. And somehow, mysteriously, Stephen has this peace about him. He has this calm about him. As he's being pummeled with stones, he has a peace and a calm and can pray for those who are stoning him. Think about that. Then in verse 60, it says, he fell asleep. It uses a, a soft language, a sweet language concerning the death of a saint. What is Luke trying to explain to us there? I don't know. I really don't know. And what confuses me more are stories like this one that I'll share with you that I learned this week. So Ian Murray has written uh, a number of books, but one of which is a commentary, excuse me, a, a biography on the life of Amy Carmichael who was a missionary to India. She's from Ireland, and she was a Christian missionary to India. And in his biography, it says this. As she was a missionary in, in India, she tended to little girls, rescuing little girls out of slavery. And there was one little girl, her name was Lula. And Lula had suddenly come down with a tropical illness that had killed so many people in that era. This was in the 1900s, the early 1900s. And this little girl, Lula, had gotten that virus or that disease. And it says the little girl was in great pain and struggling to breathe. And Amy, Amy Carmichael writes in her diary, looking to us in the room, she was looking to us for something that we could not give her. Amy Carmichael then left her at bedside to go and to pray for the little girl that she would be taken quickly. And then she says this in her journal. I was not more than a minute away from her, and then when I returned, the little girl was radiant. Her little lovely face was lighted up with amazement and happiness. She was looking up and clapping her hands as a delighted child would do. And when she saw me, she stretched out her arms. She flung them around my neck as though saying goodbye to me in a hurry to be gone. And then she turned to the others in the room in the same eager way. And then again, holding out her arms to someone whom we could not see. She clapped her hands. Had only one of us seen this thing, we might have doubted. But we all three saw it. There was no trace of pain in her face at that moment. And she was never to taste of pain again. We looked where she was looking, almost thinking that we would see what she saw. What must the fountain of joy be if the spray from the edge of the pool can be like that? And the little girl passed. Now, I don't know what to do with that. 
I think that Christians bleed when they die. I think that Christians hurt when they die. I think the Lord can do mysterious and wondrous things in the life of Stephen and the life of a little girl. Does he do it for us all? I don't know. There's nothing that tells us that he does. But what we are told is that he is a very near presence in our hour of need for those who look to him in faith. And so speaking to a people who are either already diagnosed or yet to be diagnosed, and that's what every one of us truly is, now would be the time to draw near to Jesus and to have this this sweet confidence that it's all about His promises and what He has promised to do for sinners who look to Him in faith. And it's not about just getting our earthly affairs in order, getting our financial affairs in order, but it's about having our spiritual affairs, our relationship with God Himself, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that we might have His confidence prior to diagnosis, prior to death. There is a warm and mysterious and sweet calmness that the gospel brings. And my hope for all of us, for my family, for myself, and for all of you as a church family, that we would know what it is to draw close to the Prince of Peace. That we might be bold in death. We might be bold in sickness. That we might be able to say, if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. The outcome is the same. Whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. But the truth is, most, even in the church, haven't thought about that. Church has been a place to have a cover dish, have a social calendar, worship on Sunday, and then we get into what we call the real world, where we are busy. And every once in a while, we'll give our thoughts to the Lord and His promises. But this morning, we should be provoked to see the reality that death is imminent. It is coming. And it may be horrific. Probably not being called to be martyred, killed because of Jesus. Probably only called to die in Jesus. But whether martyred or dying in Jesus, the outcome is the same. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Do you have that kind of gospel confidence? Because it's what Jesus is offering you. It can be yours. It's available to you by faith in Him. I'll close with this. This is from the Heidel... Heidelberg Catechism, question one. Some of you know this. Some of you have memorized this. All of us probably should memorize it. But the question the the catechism asks, and remember what catechisms are. They are question and answer format to help us remember and memorize truth. And the question is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I am not my own but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also, what is more, He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live, and I would add, to die for Him. What's your only comfort in life and death? Is it how that bank account is doing? Is it having your affairs in order? Or is it Jesus and His perfect life, His death, His resurrection? Hey, this morning would be a great time to cash in all your false hopes and false assurances and to redeem the one, the one, the sole one that truly is a comfort for life and for death. Hey, to help you personally to make that prayer your own and for you to remember it throughout this week, we're going to close with a song. Some of you know, maybe many of you don't. I think it's going to be taught to us so that we are more familiar with it and then we'll all sing it together. But it's the hymn, uh, All Must Be Well. And those lyrics, uh, I'll just read the third stanza. And you'll feel the movement of the song, the growing confidence in the gospel, where it says all will be well, all is well. And in the third stanza, it says this. We expect a bright tomorrow. All will be well. Faith can sing through days of sorrow. All is well. On our Father's love relying, Jesus every need supplying, Yes, in living and in dying, all must be well. And that is all intentionally crafted to build and show the confidence, past, present, and future, that the gospel offers Christians. The only question is, do you have that confidence? Let's pray that we do. Oh, Lord, would you give us gospel confidence? Would you help us this morning to trade in the false confidences that we have and believe in every day? Whether it's the way we look, whether it's our grades, whether it's our job security, whether it's our happiness in the present life, Lord, would we cash it all in and see that it's the person and work of Jesus alone that gives us full and true confidence in this life and in the next. Lord, would you help us to know that all must be well when our faith is in Jesus. And it's in his strong and bold name that we pray. Amen.